welcome to Deeper, a podcast of the Wollongong Baptist Church. Our podcast follows the Sunday sermon and aims to help our congregations go deeper into God's Word. Hello and welcome to Deeper. My name is Kate Cole and I'm going to be hosting our episode today and we are joined by Rod Bailey. Rod, good to have you here. I'm back. I missed my last one. <laughs> Mark had to take over. Very clever. Very clever. Oh, that's right. <laughs> just got to go to a conference and you can get out of things. <laughs> or overseas or what other? <laughs> yeah, I haven't tried overseas, but you know, if somebody wants to pay for a flight, I'm, I'm happy to go. There you go. There you, something to work towards. Last day of winter, Rod. I know. I love spring and I'm not a big fan of winter, so I'm pretty excited about the transition. Yeah, mm. very good. Well, I, I think uh, I think the weather's a day ahead. It's pretty nice out there today. It's good, yeah. Hopefully they're still wrong with the rain. Yeah, yeah. hopefully. Uh, are you looking forward to the prayer and praise night this evening? Yes. Um, I'm thinking about how I'm going to juggle that and then come back to my home group straight after. But yes, it'll be a busy night, but I'm excited about doing both. Yeah, okay. It'll be interesting to see if it changes the dynamic of home group. Yes. Yeah. Depends how many from my home group go, doesn't it? (laughs) Good point. Very good point. All right. Well, let's let's go back to Sunday. We'll chat about that. Uh, We were straddling two chapters on Sunday. End of five, beginning of six. Mm. Um, you asked the question, how does Jesus ensure that the gospel goes out? Can you walk us through how you answered that question? Yeah, so two answers, um, one from each section. So firstly, from the end of chapter five, by giving courage in the face of persecution. So there's this whole focus again on the Sanhedrin. Sort of this is an intensification, round two mm. of their sort of attack on the apostles. And then secondly, from the start of chapter 6, by enabling change um, to overcome disunity. So there's this internal threat again. So it's kind of round two of each as we've been going through Acts. So we've sort of uh, looked at each of these aspects in the previous two weeks, and now we've got combined in the way we've done the passages Mm -hmm. into one. Yeah. yeah, okay. And something that we have seen um, a few times now is the apostles uh, going against instruction by the authorities, but we haven't really talked about that in the podcast. I know you mm. guys have kind of referred to it in your sermons, um, but they have been repeatedly given strict orders by the Sanhedrin to not teach in Jesus' name. In verse uh, 29, though, Peter and the other apostles reply, we must obey God rather than men. Can you walk us through the justification for disobeying leaders and authorities that God in his sovereignty has appointed? Mm. There's, uh, there's a spectrum of uh, Christian response to this, isn't there? Mm. Some um, really want to follow everything and are sort of horrified that anyone's going against the law and others are the Australian way, perhaps, always <laughs> wanting to push against whatever authority there is. But I guess the, the go-to passage in the New Testament is Romans 13, first seven verses, probably the primary passage in the New Testament um, on the question where Paul asserts that everyone has to be subject to authorities um, wherever possible because they've been established by God. So if you go against the governing authority, you're going against God because he's put them in place. So you're to submit, uh, not just because you might get punished, um, which is sometimes the only reason people obey the law, but out of conscience as a Christian because you want to obey the authorities that God has placed. Uh, put in place. And so, you know, we're called by Paul in that passage to respect, to honor, to pay taxes, mm-hmm. to do whatever is we're called to do. 
um, because we're obeying God by obeying the authority. Mm. But I guess the book of Acts gives us a counter to that in the sense that there are limits to submitting to authority. And I guess the two things that we're sort of given uh, two examples in Acts are really about religious freedom, we might term it today, um, in that there's a call for Christians to be silent. They're trying to stop the gospel going out because they disagree um, with um, Jesus being the Messiah. And so they see it as a threat and as new movement. They don't see it as linked to Judaism. They see it as this separate thing, the religious leaders, and so they want to stamp it out. Mm. Um, but that is to disobey the command of Christ to make disciples of all nations. So when it comes down to a positive command from Christ or you know God's mission for this world that people will hear about Jesus, and then if authorities are against that, then that's a point at which you are free to disobey the authority, it seems clear from these examples in Acts. We might also say that, um, yeah, I mean, there's two ways to think about this. Um, if an authority commands you to do something which you know is wrong, um, then because you know what is the moral teaching from God's word, that you can't do that thing, then you must disobey. But on the other hand, you know, they they may prevent something which is correct, which mm -hmm. is right to do, which is the example in Acts where we're meant to be um, proclaiming Jesus and the salvation found in him, and they're trying to stop that. Mm. Um, so there are limits. But I think we've got to be careful as Christians, therefore we've got to think, am I just not wanting to do this because it doesn't suit me or I don't mm. like it that they've you know, brought in this rule or their taxes are higher or whatever? Like, mm. I think there's a lot of justification at times for things that are far less than what actually Scripture is pointing us to here, um, where it needs to be about um, you know, the gospel going out, um, God's word, his people, his mission being suppressed. Mm. Uh, there's a point. Um, or us being clearly commanded to do something that we, we can't do as believers. Mm. Um, you know, where, you know, at, point, at points where in the past where you've had uh, dictators in control of mm. countries where they're really asking them to persecute a minority or all kinds of things, which just, uh, yeah, morally reprehensible, then, mm. you know, Christians can't take part in that kind of thing. So we have to stand up and say, no, I, w I won't be part of that. Mm. Um, but I think those examples are pretty limited. Yeah. Okay. What about smuggling Bibles into countries that have banned them? Yeah. Okay. So Brother Andrew and um, yeah, all that's happened um, Yeah, for Voice of the Martyrs also, mm. um, you know, these kind of groups. Um, yeah. When does it come to a point, you know, people have the question, um, Nazis in the war, um, you know, are you hiding Jews in your house? Do you lie? Mm, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so the, it's interesting. Um, I heard somebody the other day talking about that in reflection on um, Sunday and some other things. And they said, oh, we had that test question. I can remember at some event about 20 years ago and we were chatting and um, half the people said, no, they would lie because, you know, they're protecting life. And the yeah. others said, no, you have to obey the authority. And so, so he said, we then termed one part, you know, the lying Christians. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it's, it's difficult, I think. Mm. I think some of those moments are really an issue of conscience mm. and um, is protecting a life, another one that fits into that limited number of categories where we disobey. Um, many would argue yes, but, um, yeah, we start to get into areas where we can push mm. um, and Christians can be unsure 
mm. uh, about what to do or disagree with a fellow Christian about the right response. Okay, sure. Um, let's talk about Gamaliel. Mm. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, I'll go with that. Okay, great. <laughs> um, he's an intriguing character. Uh, the Pharisees, to me, always seem so monstrous. So I found his solution for dealing with the apostles quite refreshing and profoundly wise, and it was a big relief that they weren't going to be put to death. Um, is Gamaliel's response unusual for a Pharisee? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Pharisees were like the opposition party, if you like. It's very political because yeah. the Sanhedrin is not made up of one group. There are two substantial groups in the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees always had the power. It was sort of a political thing. It was a historical thing. Certain families with control, they wanted to maintain control, and they had done a deal with the Roman um, Empire, and so they sort of keep their sort of sense of place. And, but the Pharisees were more the party of the people, if you like. So the Pharisees um, functioned as a check against the power of the Sadducees in some way, but they always tried to keep the nation on track in terms of fulfilling the law. The Sadducees were more interested in their power and, yeah, material position. The Pharisees were more the fed income group in terms of, no, we really want to obey the Old Testament law mm -hmm. and we want to see God's people do so. And so there was a big distinction, too, in their theology. So the Pharisees believed in oral tradition, that that was important, uh, not just what was written in the Old Testament. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the existence of um, the spiritual realm, the demonic, and so on, uh, the sovereignty of God. Sadducees rejected all those things. Um, and so Gamaliel is um, yeah, a Pharisee, and so... By nature, with some of his theology, he's going to be a little bit warmer mm -hmm. um, to what the apostles are presenting than the Sadducees. And he's going to be a bit less threatened because it's not all about power to him. It's about God's people taking God's word seriously. The question is whether Jesus is the Messiah and whether mm. these people are really fulfilling the law in the way they speak. Mm. Um, but it's interesting because Gamaliel's the only rabbi named in Acts. He gets named here, but mm. also later in Acts 22, where we learn that he's the um, teacher of the Apostle Paul. So um, he's one of the few rabbis in the period also to appear in later Jewish traditions. So the Jewish tradition is often written down in a um, series of books or scrolls called the Mishnah. Um, and it says that when he died, uh, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. And, and so he was held in very high esteem, you know, yeah. as somebody that really embodied the law and was serious about it in a way that a lot of people weren't. And so he was a student of Hillel, um, and they, I think they argued that he was even in his family line. So there were kind of two major schools of thought for the Pharisees, mm -hmm. and Hillel was the more liberal, more moderate uh, view on things. Um, and so he was very representative of that uh, in moderation, be cautious, don't overly um, jump to one conclusion or another. So he, he does represent this sort of voice of mature reasoning, mm. you know, in the debate. So he is very interesting and he's, he's rare. Um, and it's the first speech by a non-Christian in the book of Acts, so it's significant. And it's mm. a speech to the Sanhedrin warning them not to act too abruptly, yeah. you know, an opponent actually being helpful in some sense. Um, and that is unusual for a Pharisee. But I think Luke is making the point that, um, you know, perceptive opponents are aware of a standard by which you might judge this new movement, this Christian faith, mm -hmm. and that is well, what will unfold in the longer term. You know, does it have staying power? 
That's how you can assess things. So he, he talks about a couple of rebellions that had happened in the past mm. and says, well, you know, they just petered out to nothing. The leader died. All the followers dispersed. Um, if this is just of human origin, it's going to be like that. So we can mm. just wait and see. You don't have to rush to anything. Mm. Just let it unfold. Yeah. Um, but that's, yeah, a very sort of passive reaction. Obviously, a lot in the Sanhedrin were very proactive. <laughs> Certainly on the Sadducee side, they mm. were like, these guys are a threat to our power. We've got a good deal here with the Romans. We're going to kill these guys. That mm. was more the attitude that you get from the Sadducees. So I think, yeah, we, we often have a really negative view of the Pharisees. Mm. I think if we want to think a bit about it a bit more balanced as the New Testament presents it, if you want somebody who's always wearing the black hat, it's mm. the Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees, there's a little bit more there because they're so committed to seeing the holiness of God's people and obeying the Old Testament law. They're just misguided yeah. often rather than not being interested in the spiritual dimension. Okay. It's the Sadducees who are not particularly spiritual. Okay. That's really helpful. I want to keep asking questions, but that's okay. Mm. We need to move on. That's, um, that's really interesting. Um, in quoting Hebrews 12, you stated that by fixing our eyes on Jesus and what he endured, we dwell on that to motivate courage within ourselves during persecution. How do we build that frame of mind within us so that we may become more courageous for Christ? Yeah, I think this is a good question because it's not simply – um, Jesus was create uh, was courageous. Be like him, um, you know, because often that doesn't inspire us. We can point to another person, mm. right? Oh, look how they jumped off the cliff, you know, and did base jumping. Just follow them. Mm. Be courageous, and we think, no, I can't do what they just did. And so, seeing an example of somebody else doesn't mean that I naturally can feel that, or um, you know, I just don't feel like I'm wired the same way. I'm missing mm. that courage, or whatever it is that they have. Um, so it's not simply. Um, copy because that we find that hard. I don't think that always motivates us or moves us forward because mm. we just think, well, I'm not sure how to do that. Um, so I think it's more about identity. Uh, by owning Christ, as the Puritan Thomas Brooks put it, you know, we so identify with Jesus that we will naturally stand up for him no matter the cost. Like, um, I don't have to think about my identity at any moment. I'm just a Jesus follower. And anyone who attacks Jesus, I'm going to defend him. Um, anyone gives me an opportunity to speak about Jesus, I'm straight in. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of his disciples. And I think our struggle today is we see sort of Christianity as a, a, a category or a, we can compartmentalize our faith. Mm. And so then I, I question, well, do I want to stand up or be known to re- – be connected with Jesus? Am I going to identify with him at this moment because there's pushback or this is difficult? Well, that's not a decision if I'm mm. a real follower of Jesus. And so I think we've got, to, we've got to work harder on our identity in Christ, which means understanding who we are in Jesus, um, owning him, as mm. Thomas Brooks would say. So, you know, the apostles could talk about um, being honored by being disgraced for Jesus' name. And that is, it's so good to be identified with Jesus that if I get smacked in the face because of Jesus, mm-hmm. then I'm, I'm, you know, I've been worthy of uh, honor because I'm identifying so strongly with Christ that um, some of the suffering that He said would come to those who followed Him seriously mm-hmm. has now come to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just don't think in those terms mm-hmm. because uh, we want to avoid any sort of difficulty at all cost. You know, we're looking for this comfortable route from cradle to the grave you know Mm. like this is our culture 
And so the idea of I want to be marked out as his person and whatever comes to me, that's great because that'll glorify Jesus and I'm honored for standing up for him. Um, yeah, the fact that we cannot relate to that easily says a lot about our identity with Christ and the culture that we live in, in my view. Um, and he suffered immensely to bring us into this relationship with him, but we value the relationship uh, less than we should and, and are cautious about identifying with him in all mm. kinds of spaces. And that's just not a true follower of Christ. Yeah. I'm so glad that you referred to verse 41, which is where it says that the disciples rejoiced for being counted worthy of the disgrace. I that's That's been with me since Sunday, that particular part of the passage, and I was trying to work out how to ask a question around that. But it is just so foreign, and it, it almost frightened me that it was so foreign um, that I uh, – it was an. I almost wanted to ask a question about: Is it a prescriptive or a descriptive kind of thing? And and I know the answer to that. It's prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really big challenge, I think, mm. to be uh, reflecting on our identity in Jesus and and um and what that means uh, for us. So thank you for for going there. Um, a more modern um, example of people identifying with Jesus is that story. Um, that you shared with us on Sunday, the very sobering story about uh, the pastor and his family that were effectively martyred for their faith during the Korean War. You became visibly emotional during this story, and it might seem obvious why you were moved, but I'd really like to hear what it was for you that was so affecting. Yeah, I actually find um, it interesting because I'm not a very emotional person, (laughs) Um, um, and I don't say that as a stoical sort of a male sort of not wanting to show emotion. I think I actually, I, I'm partly, I have some English background <laughs> and partly Italian. I wish the more emotional Italian side was uh, more present, to be honest. Um, um, my wife would probably say she'd never seen me cry. I'm, I'm that kind of person. But I find that this happens to me about once every six mm. months when I'm sharing a story about people that I've never met. Yeah. Uh, it seems strange at some level. Um, but, yeah, I... I think I see myself in the story, and it's not so much uh, visualizing it um, vividly in a way that sort of hits me or something. I think it's just I identify with the choice. It's it's usually the family aspect that gets me, um, other people being affected uh, by the choice of somebody's faith. Mm. And so then I think about, um, yeah, if I were in that position, my my choice to follow Jesus, what impact that has on my wife or my children, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's what hits me, but it's not. It's funny when I um, I realize they're sobering stories, but when I write them down, I never think that I'm going to be emotional when mm-hmm. I deliver it. It's always a shock to me when I do <laughs> okay. uh, feel that way, and so I actually um, see that as the Spirit's work as I'm preaching. Like sometimes you say things that you didn't have written down, mm-hmm. or you express things in a way that you didn't plan to, and I think the emotion comes out sometimes and. Uh, and it's often commented on by people after the service mm. and they'll say how they were emotional or it helped them to really feel the sense of the story. Now, I didn't plan that. There was no sort of sense of wanting to manipulate that. But I think sometimes what we're moved by more as we respond to God's word is not the bare fact of it, but the emotion that should be attached to it. Sure. And so I think what's often missing as we speak about things is the emotional freight that should come 
with the thing we're describing. Mm. And I don't think I always have that, but sometimes when God does that in the situation, I think, well, that's good. I, I didn't plan this, and he's just produced that. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I'm not embarrassed about that. I think it's actually helpful for mm. people often, and it's probably more helpful for me to um, sort of feel the weight of some of the things I'm saying at times. Mm. Um yeah, so I think it's just an interesting thing. Um, yeah, I do see it as God's work in the situation. And I I believe that preaching should move us emotionally. I think it brings conviction, just as we would say when we're singing a song. Mm. If I just sort of mouth the words and there's no sense of feeling or emotion in it, then have I really worshipped God in that moment? Um so, yeah, the expression of affection, feeling, emotion in all that we do as Christians, including in preaching, um, is something that lots of people have written about in the past from Jonathan Edwards onwards. Mm. So. Yeah. Well, speaking of the emotional freight uh, of of, our, of the news we have to share, uh, the weight and the beauty of the gospel has the power to overawe us so that we cannot help but talk about Jesus. Um, but as we move into the beginning of chapter six, we see that complaining and divisions can become a distraction. And sadly, this happens in churches. People lose sight of ensuring the gospel goes out because they're so focused on seeing things done their way. Are there things that we need to be on the lookout for to avoid being ensnared by division? Absolutely, and Scripture has a lot to say about this, right? Um, you know, and sometimes it's just a rejection of sound doctrine, uh, you know, mm. itching ears of 2 Timothy 4.3. Um, so Paul will say in Titus 3, you know, avoid foolish controversies, arguments and quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable. They're useless. So sometimes we get caught up in secondary doctrinal issues of things, fighting over things that are unimportant. Mm. Um, and so I guess, you know, there's lots of examples <laughs> down through church history of doing that. But perhaps in more recent decades, you know, people fight about the beginning of the world and the end of the world. So they have issues around creation. They have mm. issues around eschatology. Um, and really those things are less central than sometimes we make them. Um, the central things that are core are the gospel. Um, and certainly those things flow out of it in some sense, but it's Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension, um, forgiveness of sins through him, responding in repentance and faith. These are the core things that we can't disagree on doctrinally. Mm. Um, but when we step outside of some of those core things, we've got to be careful because sometimes mm. they just become hobby horses and we divide over those things. So that's one thing to look out for. It's just doctrinal um, issues that are secondary that we, we like to argue over, and perhaps that's not fruitful. But then there is the more benign, if we can say, <laughs> just practical things of an example like this, you know, people not being met, structures not working, um, not happy with this method, not happy with the color of the carpet, whatever it might yeah. be, and we get caught up over little practical aspects that are not about belief in what God has revealed in the Bible, mm. um, but just about how we do things as a church. Um, and a lot of that can have to do with just uh, tradition. And so if something changes, what we're actually showing as we struggle with that and argue about things that are unimportant is that we struggle to change. Mm. <laughs> That's really our problem. Or there's an issue around control. You know, there's issues of pride or things being done a certain way because I want them done that way. Mm -hmm. And so what we don't recognize as we say, oh, you know, this is really important is that I'm really just fighting for something that is my preference mm. and I'm trying to impose it on other people 
um, and make them feel the weight of something that's really not that important. Mm. Um, so we've got to be careful on those fronts too. Mm. And I think what uh, can help us as we think about those things is are we thinking about uh, church as a consumer? Is church about me and my preferences? Or um, you know, is it about God and others? So are my concerns selfish? Uh, do they show that I'm missing the big picture? And so if so, the remedy is the gospel. Mm. And it's thinking about God's overarching plan to bring a people together that are for his praise and glory before he's thrown for eternity. So, I, you know, I need to read passages like Ephesians 1 again. <laughs> and all things will be brought under Christ. Like this is the heart of what God is doing in the world. Is my concern about where this chair is placed fitting in with that, you know, or whatever it might be. Mm. We need to put things in perspective to what God is doing in his world. Mm. Am I on his mission or is it just my little mission? Yeah. that I'm you know, so focused on. Mm. It's got me thinking about our next series. <laughs> we move into 1 Corinthians. That'll be good to, mm-hmm. to address that. Uh, good timing too, because there's a lot of change coming up for us. Uh, there was an exhortation at the end of your message to care well for one another through change, and you listed some pretty significant changes that are planned for us at WBC. Mm-hmm. How can we approach these next stages that are on the horizon in a way that will enhance unity and lead to growth? Yeah, well, just relating to what I've just said, it's it's praying and asking God that we'd be focused on his mission. Mm. Um, and so part of that is the, I guess, the Sunday school answer of, well, I need to read the Bible and pray. These things, you know, that are the means of grace, the basic bread and butter, we have to keep doing them because if I keep hearing God's voice as I read his word, then I see what is important. I don't get distracted. Mm. I don't, um, yeah, feel that... Um, you know, it's all about thinking inwardly about what our needs are as a church, but I'm concerned about, you know, the harvest fields um, and the many who have not responded to Christ yet. Mm. So uh, I need to hear God's voice on that over and over by reading his word. I need to be praying into that, praying that I'll be on mission. And I'm not just sort of focused on myself or my family or what we're getting this week or whatever. And I know that can be harder at times. You know, we can go through struggles, we can have health issues or whatever, and it tends to reduce our field of vision down Mm. uh, to just the things that I'm trying to cope with at this moment. So I need to try and maintain perspective, whatever's going on in my life, about what God's big vision is. Mm. Um, So that's really important. How can I do that? Well, apart from reading the Bible and praying to that end, you know, I need to be reading books that encourage me um, to have a heart for mission, like our book for this term. Mm. Um, need to be listening to podcasts that will help me do that. I think a great thing is reading biographies of people in the past and their focus on mission, you know, of missionaries that went out, whether it's a Hudson Taylor or a William Carey. Or, you know, and it doesn't have to be those grand examples even, but just uh, people who got the big picture mm. and just devoted themselves to it. And I may only have a tenth of their sort of energy and um, focus or whatever, but just by hearing again through somebody else's eyes what is important can be so challenging and just reorienting for me. Um, So I think that's really helpful. And I think probably the number one thing personally is actually to be engaged in sharing the gospel with non-Christian family and friends. If I am doing that regularly and I am interacting, hearing people's struggles to believe or their opposition or whatever the obstacles or barriers are, then that will sharpen my thinking all the time. Mm. And I'll just be conscious of the world around me and the struggle for the gospel to go out and be received. There's nothing really more enlivening for our faith than having those gospel conversations. I mean, personally, I love it. Um, Whenever I'm having a conversation just about explaining 
why I believe in Jesus mm. and, and what you know is trustworthy about the Bible or whatever the question might be, mm. I think it, then you really feel, ah, oh, you know, my faith is real and active because I'm, I, I am convicted of these things. I'm convicted even as I hear myself speaking about how important <laughs> these things yeah. are. And I think, yes, this is true. Um, I think, yeah, if we don't have that engagement ourselves personally, then it's easy to sort of let that fade into the background and my, my field of vision comes down to just the people I know, the Christians I'm hanging out with all the mm. time, and my concern and my love for the lost just fades. Mm. Our home group um, have been think, trying to think about who we can be sharing the gospel with and who we can be praying for, and I find just that weekly marker of if I've gotten swept up in the, the seven-day cycle, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at least there's a point in the week. I mean, I get reminded on Sunday too, but mm-hmm. um, there's something about actually talking, like you were saying, with other people mm-hmm. and um, having other people pray for your friends, even if they don't know them, mm-hmm. knowing that they're also praying for the people that you're hoping to share the gospel with. I think that's really powerful and mm-hmm. so easy to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's lots of lots of ways, I think, that we can be keeping our eyes outside the four walls of the church mm. to be helping us spread the word. Absolutely. All right, Rod, thank you so much for your wisdom today. Really grateful for all that you've prepared for us. And thank you, Mike, for your work behind the scenes. Uh, and thank you for listening. We will see you next time. This has been a podcast of the Wollongong Baptist Church. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services on our website at wollongongbaptist.org.